Goodbye, Sarah. <laughs> you know, it's something to think about when we send a single woman onto the field. We think of Cindy, we think of Sarah. I chatted with a brother from Kentucky yesterday whose daughter has gone off to the mission field. He has three sons and a daughter. And his son has often gone to very dangerous areas of the world in ministry. And as we chatted, we talked about the difference between sending a son and a daughter. You send a son, you think, oh, he's tough, he can handle anything. But you send a daughter, and there's a sense of sending tender flesh into dangerous territory. I urge you to pray for our sister as she goes forth into this land. Well, you may not know it, or perhaps you did. Jim Grinnell was originally scheduled to preach today. But because of the change of worship schedule, it has been my privilege to be here today. <laughs> and so as I received that news Tuesday, what would you have brought, Lord? And God already had been stirring in my mind a particular verse of Scripture. And as the hours and time went by, it became obvious that that is the word that God would have brought. Let me set the stage. Paul and Silas and Timothy have been traveling through Achaia and Macedonia, that area that we now know as Greece. They'd been evangelizing. and They'd also been visiting existing churches. And every place they went where there was an existing church, they received an offering for the saints who lived in Jerusalem. There was a famine in Jerusalem and the Christians under some persecution were facing difficult times. And so Paul urged each of the Gentile churches to collect an offering that he might take back to the saints at Jerusalem. And Paul, being a man of high integrity, would say to the churches, I don't want to carry this offering myself, but you appoint someone to travel with me and travel with this money to oversee its administration. And so every place that Paul went that that offering was received, a brother from that church began to travel with Paul. You find the list of them in the first part of Acts 20. And so they began the journey back to Jerusalem. They went to Philippi, they sailed to Troas, and then they began their journey south. One leg of the journey, Paul said, I'd rather walk, and so... Some sailed on and Paul walked to join them. Evidently, he wanted time alone to pray. The Holy Spirit had been speaking to him about what lay ahead. Every place he went, the Holy Spirit was saying, there's suffering, there's trial, there's trouble. You're going to have opposition every place you go when you get to Jerusalem. And yet Paul says, bound in the Spirit, he pressed on. He wanted to get to Jerusalem in Time for Pentecost, and so the calendar was flipping and the clock was ticking as, in a way, they were hurrying onward. And then they came to Miletus. Now, sailing on ships in that day was a lot like traveling by air today. For instance, if you want to go to Washington, D.C., you probably will fly from Tulsa to Chicago, and there you'll change planes and take one on to Washington. I had an unusual experience coming back from Washington uh, earlier this year. I flew from Reagan 
to St. Louis, and then St. Louis flew over Tulsa to Dallas, and then Dallas back to Tulsa. So they have these hubs where uh, you would connect with planes. The same is true sailing by ship. And so when they got to Miletus, waiting for the weather to be right, among other things, and the wind the right direction, Paul wanted to visit with the Ephesian elders. Now Miletus was a seaport of Ephesus, which was about 20 to 25 miles further inland. And he knew that if he decided to travel to Ephesus, the ship that he wanted to board would sail without him, and he couldn't risk that. And so he said to the elders of Ephesus, he sent a messenger, come and meet me at Miletus. And they came and they joined him. And he really delivered to them a very emotional farewell. Let me read beginning with Acts 20, verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly and house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now behold, bound in spirit, and it really should say the spirit because the Greek is tonemati there, bound in the spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any count as dear to myself, in order that I may finish my course in the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The word counsel, bule, can be translated counsel, purpose, will. The NLT, I think, says uh, everything you ought to hear, <laughs> and so on. But the phrase that kept coming over and over in my mind is found in verse 20 and 27. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And in 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose or counsel of God. And I pondered, Lord, why? Why is that phrase like a wheel going through my mind. And I sensed this morning that it would be God's will for me to speak about the whole counsel of God. 
and how it is important for us in our teaching and our conversations with one another to have the whole counsel of God. And certain things that might keep us from doing that. Attitudes, actions, deeds, teaching. What is the whole counsel of God? Attitude. Now, I think the last time, the time before I was in the pulpit, I spoke of the importance of gratitude. So I hope it's not redundant if I talk about that again. (laughs) Monday morning, a couple of hours before daybreak, around 5 o'clock or so, 4.30, something like that, as I was praying before the Lord, the Lord began to speak to me anew about gratitude. And the thing that he brought to mind was something that had not come to me with the intensity that it did that morning. Thank God I was born here and in this time. But I began to think, what if I had been born in a country that from childhood I had been programmed to accept the religion of Islam? About a month ago, received a call from Betty Monimi. Some of you perhaps remember her. Betty and David were in the church in the 1980s. No purpose, she just wanted to talk. <laughs> Let me tell you about Betty and David Monimi. David, his real name, he's Iranian, his name is Nasir. And Nasir was a, an engineering student, and the Iranian government sent him to the United States to study engineering. And he was studying in the university, and while there he met Betty, and she violated Paul's injunction, a Christian, she married a Muslim. All kinds of problems resulted, and finally the Iranian government canceled all of his scholarships. He was ordered to come back home and leave his wife. There was all kinds of machinations, but Betty was able to go back with him to Iran. And there he began to teach in the university, and he was, they, they were really kept from leaving Iran for 12 years by the Shah. And then when the Shah was deposed and Khomeini came in power, they were released to return to America. And here he again taught. One of his students was a nephew. This nephew looked up to his uncle and idolized him. The nephew's name was Amadali. And he admired Nasir. Nasir accepted Jesus. And while he and Betty were here in Tulsa, he was a brother in the Lord. A year ago he died. And he died with great peace because he belonged to Jesus. His nephew, knowing that, called Betty and said, Ahmad Ali, I wish I had... How could Nasir die with such certainty that he was going to heaven? She said, because he trusted the blood of Jesus. And she was able to witness to this nephew and tell him about Christ. You see, a Muslim has no assurance of salvation unless he is killed for the faith. Other than that, he can keep all the laws, pray five times a day, do all the stuff, but he's never sure he's done enough. 
Monday morning, I was reminded of that, and the Lord stirred gratitude in my heart that from the earliest years of my life, I heard the gospel of Jesus. And when I take communion with my family every Sunday, I'm saying, I declare to heaven, I declare to the devil, I declare to everybody, heaven's mine. Oh, God, thank you that you let me know the gospel. Then this thought came to me. What if I had been born under the old covenant? Think about that. You have to sacrifice a bull. You have to sacrifice a goat. You have to sacrifice a lamb for your sins and everything else. And if you don't have enough money for that, you at least have to buy a dove. Spend some money. <laughs> but you never really have peace. I thank God. I thank God that I have Jesus Christ, and I know that heaven is mine. Gratitude. <laughs> the whole counsel of God. Something to think about. And, and God began to speak to me about how I pray. Jim, when you pray, you usually have a little bit of gratitude, but then you bring this long laundry list of stuff. <laughs> 200 things that are wonderful and five that aren't, and you focus on the five. The full whole counsel of God is saying to me, Jim, look at all the goodness that you have and have gratitude. I would urge us as a gratitude, the church, rather, to get stirred more in gratitude. Get stirred more in gratitude and come to the Lord with thanksgiving in an increased way. Sometimes we don't bring the whole counsel of God because we don't like certain doctrines. For example, hell. How long has it been since we have heard a sermon on hell? <laughs> long time, hasn't it been? Uh, that, we don't want to preach about that one. I have friends who uh, are ultimate reconciliationists. Now, ultimate reconciliationists say, yes, there's a hell, and you go to hell to get an attitude adjustment, and then you go to heaven. So it's not like purgatory, <laughs> where you go pay a price and get refined, but your attitude has changed. How on earth can you deny hell when you read Matthew 25? When you read the closing chapters of Revelation. When you read Jude talking about saving some with fear, clutching them out of the fire. There's a hell. I'd urge young people to realize there's a hell. Sometimes we get moving along in life, but let me tell you, there's a hell, and people are going to hell, and the Bible says most people are going to hell. Everybody's going to hell who has not taken the only way, truth, and the life, which is Christ Jesus. The whole counsel of God says there's a hell. And that's sobering, isn't it? Sobering to think about. I thought about this too. You know we don't talk much about demons, do we? <laughs> but there are demons. There are demons. 
And one of the challenges I face through life is sometime when counseling with someone who seems to have a mental illness, am I dealing with a mental illness or am I dealing with a demon? And I've never had sufficient insight or perception to distinguish between the two, but when you get outside of our culture, people recognize demons. In the third world, demons are recognized and known, and demons are active in our culture today. They just come in disguise. We need to pray that God would give us greater discernment about demons who are harassing people, who are who are moving in our culture in power, changing thinking, changing society. Demons are active. <laughs> they were active in the ministry of Jesus. The apostles encountered him. You know, one, one way demons may come in disguise is illustrated in Acts 16. You remember Paul and Barnabas and, and Timothy? They were preaching, and every day they went down to the river to pray. And as they would travel, there was a woman who had a spirit of divination. And she would follow them and say, these are servants of the Most High God, servants of the Most High God. Spirit of divination. There was a demon that inhabited her, but that demon was speaking the truth to kind of hide and cloak itself. And finally, one day, Paul said, that's enough. And he cast out the demon, and her owners got mad because she couldn't tell fortunes anymore, and they lost their income. Demons are real. We need to think about that. Now, we react because we can remember the days when folks saw a demon under every chair, and we could react against that. But let's not forget Satan has his angels that are active among us. And that's part of the whole counsel of God. I think another thing that we don't emphasize enough is the ministry of healing. James Chapter 5, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. I'll read it for you, beginning with verse 14. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, they'll forgive him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain. It did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. He prayed again. The sky poured rain. The earth produced its fruit. When I was a boy, it was extremely rare to ever go to the doctor's office. But if you were sick, you called the doctor and he came to your house. He made house calls. The only time I can ever remember going to the doctor, there may have been other times, but I don't remember one. My mother 
had always washed clothes on a scrub board with a tub. And one day my father bought a used Maytag washer, the old one, you know, cast metal and ringers. And we had it out in the backyard under a shade tree with an extension cord running into the house. And mother and I were doing laundry on this new, and rather new used Maytag washer under a shade tree. And I got my hand caught in the ringer. And it just about tore this finger off. And so my dad took me to Dr. Jesse L. Blakemore's office. Now, Jesse L. Blakemore had come into Oklahoma in the land run in 1892. The Dawes Commission, which was enlisting all the citizens of the five civilized tribes, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Seminole, Cherokee, and Creek, getting everybody's name. And when Dawes quit, Dr. Blakemore took over that commission. He was really a pioneer in Oklahoma. And so in his office, that really showed because he started putting the muscles back in place and working on this joint. And then he took out his needle and started sewing. No painkiller. Cuss, boy, it won't hurt <laughs> as much. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, Dr. Blakemore, Jesus doesn't want me to cuss. And my father stood there shedding tears when he heard me say that. But most of the time you called the doctor and he came to your house. He made house calls. <laughs> and that's what Paul says here. Dr. Jesse L. Blakemore did not go around the neighborhood knocking on doors saying, y'all need any medical help? <laughs> he didn't stand on a corner and say, you folks form a line. But the burden was on the patient to call the doctor. And that's the picture we have here. James says, if you're sick, you call the elders. And that in itself is an expression of faith. And when you do that, let the elders come, pray over you, anoint you with oil. Many years ago, I was listening, this was probably the 1950s, to some radio preacher talking about this passage. And he said, you know, really, the elders were the doctors in those days. And what they were really talking about it was this kind of ointment they rubbed on folks. And he said the Greek word is krematidzo. So for years I thought, okay. And one day I looked at the Greek, and that's a bunch of baloney. That's not what it says at all. <laughs> the Greek word is olive oil. <laughs> and throughout Scripture, olive oil represents the presence of the Holy Spirit, you see. So the anointing with oil was not medicine, <laughs> but it was a symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit entering into that situation in response. Notice, it is not the patient who prays the prayer of faith. It is the elders who pray the prayer of faith. What's the prayer of faith? Notice he illustrates Elijah. Have you ever looked at that passage in 1 Kings 17 and 18? Elijah said, it's not going to rain for three years because until I give the word. And then later in chapter 18, verse 1, God said, go show yourself to Ahab and it'll rain. So he did that, and they went through that whole Mount Carmel thing. And then he said to the king, hey, there's sound of thunder. You better get, get back or your chair will get stuck in the mud, head for home. Elijah went on the mountain and prayed, but it wasn't his prayer that made it happen. He was affirming what God already said 
was going to happen. He obeyed. He obeyed by showing himself to Ahab. I had the privilege years ago of sitting in a small meeting with John Wimber. This is before he was well known. Talking about ministry. And some of you know the story of John Wimber. John Wimber was a very outstanding musician. He played with the Righteous Brothers. He also became their business manager at one time. And then he came to Jesus. And he began to read his Bible. And he became associated with uh, Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith. And there was a man named Gillickson who also was associated with Calvary Chapel. And Gillickson started a subset of Calvary Chapel called Vineyard. And John Wimber, in time, became associated with Gilligan, and and, uh, in time he became the leader of the vineyard. But when he first got saved and started going to church, he showed up on Sunday, and when they got through, he said, when are we going to do the stuff? They said, what are you talking about, the stuff? He said, well, I, I read about Jesus healing the sick and casting out demons, and I read about, when are we going to do the stuff? Oh, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> so most of you know his story, how in time he, he the, as he started leaving the vineyard, he said, you know, I first started people laying on hands and praying, and everybody that prayed for somebody, they got the disease of the person for whom they were praying, and nobody got healed. Prayer for somebody with the flu, the guy praying got the flu, and the person with the flu didn't get well. Every, every time they prayed for somebody, they caught the disease. And one time a man called him to the house to pray for his daughter and he said he prayed for the daughter and then he turned around to explain to the parents why God doesn't always heal and the father shouted because the girl got out of bed fully healed. And from that time on, Wimber moved more and more but his view always was that signs and wonders are for evangelism and we had that course here taught years ago at PCF. But Wimber had this emphasis. When you're going to pray for someone, don't immediately start to pray. Stop and ask God, Lord, what are you doing in this situation? And then pray in cooperation with God. That's what John says in 1 John. He says we know that we have the things we ask for because we're asking according to his will. Let me dwell on that a little bit. Bruce and I had a conversation about the difference between, in Hebrews 4, which most versions say, to find help, grace to find help in time of need. The Greek doesn't have the word deed. It literally says, find grace into timely help. Isn't that interesting? Find grace into timely help. What's timely help? One thing it means is the appropriate time. (laughs) Think about Job. Last Sunday night, Ray Smith spoke of Job. Let me take a little different tack than he did. What he spoke was wonderful. Satan came before God. And God said, what do you think about my son Job? He is the most perfect man in the whole world. 
devil said, why not? He's a prostitute. He's a whore. You're paying him. <laughs> You've made him rich. He's got all these crops. He's got this great family. What do you expect? He's just a whore. Didn't use those words, but I'm using those words so he gets points. God said, touch everything I've given him. Think about that. We don't understand sometimes how serious the battle in the heavenlies really is. You and I are the battlefield over which God and Satan fight. We also have another role. We're combatants in that battle. God said, touch everything. His children were killed. Animals killed. Servants killed. Everything. God said, look. He hasn't sinned. He hasn't turned against me. The devil said, oh, but you've never let me touch him. And God said, touch him. And Job began to have a horrible, horrible disease. And everybody abandoned him. Even his wife, the one person that should have comforted this man in his misery said, why don't you just curse God and die? But Job said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin. He had some friends that finally traveled. Job was famous because of his wealth, and so friends started coming after a while and gathering, sitting and watching. <laughs> and finally, one by one, they started to talk, and they talked, and they talked, and they talked, some of them just seem to bloviate. They like to hear their own voice. <laughs> and they said all the wrong things about God and said all the wrong things. This went on, who knows how long, months, probably months. Some say longer. And God didn't say a word or do anything. Until finally everybody, I guess, was out of wind. Then God responded. They don't know what they're talking about. And he revealed himself to Job. The appropriate time. Had God responded early on? First of all, the victory would not have been won against Satan because he would have delivered Job. Secondly, Job would not have reached the point he reached spiritually as a result of this experience. So the appropriate time was not when the cry first went out, but the response was months, and some say years later, when God responded, the appropriate time. I can tell you out of personal experience, the years that my wife and I experience during her illness years and years and years neither of us would have chosen that path but neither of us want to give away the changes God made in our lives 
by letting us walk that path year after year after year until he delivered her from her sufferings and took her into his presence. If early on God had healed, I would not even be a piece of the man I am today because God let me walk with him day after day, night after night, through the valley of the shadow of death with my loved ones. The appropriate time. The appropriate time. And also the appropriate response. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul said, a thorn has been given to me, a thorn in my flesh. Given to me because if I didn't have that, I had so many revelations I might have a high view of myself. (laughs) But he said, three times I sought God to take this away from me. Clearly a physical illness, a thorn in the flesh. God said, no, my grace is sufficient. For you. Galatians chapter 4, Paul writing to the Galatian church tells them why they got the gospel. He said, You received the gospel through, and it is dia with the accusative in the Greek. The reason you got the gospel is because I got sick and couldn't travel and had to stay in Galatia, and while I was there, preached, so you got the gospel. If God had healed Paul when he cried out, Heal me, Lord, Galatia wouldn't have gotten the gospel. But more than that, the appropriate response was not healing. The appropriate response is, My grace is sufficient for you. And only God knows the appropriate response. Sometimes it is to heal. Sometimes it is to heal through doctors, through the medical arts. And my, what a blessing that is. The medical, God uses the medical arts to heal. But there are times he intervenes and does something that defies everything natural. But whether he does this or does that, it's timely. It is what is appropriate for the time. I think as a church, as we think about the whole counsel of God, we need to anticipate the move of God in healing more than we have in recent years. Somebody asked me, have you ever seen anyone divinely heal through prayer? I've thought about that. The only one I can recall, there may have been more, Gordon and I were in Ukraine. It was Easter week, Easter, actually Easter season. Easter there goes on two weeks. The following the traditions of the Greek Orthodox Church, Eastern, Eastern Orthodox Church, Russian Orthodox, whatever. Following those traditions, Easter goes on for two weeks. And so you preach every night, services, meetings with people during the day. And uh, we had... One night I preached, and after the service there was a line, and over the side there's a group of leaders praying for people, hooping and hollering and carrying on, making all kind of noise. 
shouting in tongues, I guess. I don't know, Russian, whatever. Tongues, I know, because the one person was an American. And here I was all by myself, and I was so shocked from preaching every night and being in the villages during the day. I didn't have a hoop left in me. And here came a line of people for me to pray for. I had an amazing sense that night. I can't even put it into words. In my mind, I could almost see God on his throne. And he was hearing everything I was saying. And so in extremely quiet and weakness. And I didn't speak the language. I had no idea what these people wanted. (laughs) But one by one, I prayed and laid on hands. The next night, as the service was getting ready to begin, a whole crowd of people came in and occupied the back of the auditorium. And Gordon turned to Nikolai Levchenko through the translator and said, Who are these people? Nikolai said, Last night Jim Garrett prayed for a crippled woman. She's healed, and now the whole village is here. Wasn't that something? (laughs) Well, that's one time I know. (laughs) Perhaps there are others. Frankly, I've not kept track of many, many things. But I would urge us after a church to think about this. We, we thank God for surgeons. We thank God for internists. We thank God for the marvelous ministry nurses give. I tell you, nurses are something else in a wonderful way. Pharma, pharmacies, all of these things. But Let's not ask, let's not stop asking God to demonstrate that He is still God. It's not just our human understanding and gain knowledge and tools are human tools with the Lord. Well, I could go on and on. God has filled my mind with so many things today but these are those that probably need to be said. Let me say this. It is important as we think of the whole counsel of God that we do not get a hobby doctrine. See, it's awfully easy sometimes for us to get a hobby doctrine, and we focus on that to the point that we ignore other things. But there's also this. What sometimes seems to be a hobby doctrine isn't, but it is a necessary doctrine for the hour. Picture a city. And around this city there is a large wall to protect from the enemies. Now there's a north gate and a south gate. There's an east gate and a west gate. And inside that city, everybody is busy. The smithy is busy hammering away on the anvil. The cook is busy cooking. The baker's busy baking. The miller's busy grinding flour. Everything's going on. And then one day, an enemy comes to attack that city through the eastern gate. The miller quits milling, the baker quits baking, the cook quits cooking, the smithy quits hammering the anvil, 
everybody drops everything they're doing and rushes to that gate to defend the city. Women climb on top the wall and start pouring hot water, not oil. People get on top the wall and start shooting arrows. Every resource in that city is focused on defending the eastern gate. Jim Grinnell brought two words concerning marriage and the threat to marriage and the problem we now have with same-sex marriage. Can you imagine the amazing patience of God? The rainbow which God gave as a sign of the covenant between himself and humanity that he would never again destroy the world by a flood. And the President of the United States takes that rainbow to celebrate same-sex marriage. Now, this is not Democrat or Republican. We're talking about a man who has stuck his thumb in the eye of God and said, we'll do it our way. And so when Jim Grinnell two Sundays in a row, brought emphasis on marriage. The challenge that's being put forth right now, the enemy is hammering at the eastern gate. And so we're not on a hobby when we emphasize marriage and God's plan for marriage. So we need to understand that. There are times we muster forces, and we're not talking about all the rest of the full counsel of God, but right now here's where we're focused, but we must not camp there. We must not camp there. We must do all we can to present the full counsel in a healthy way. Well, Father, you alone are aware of what emphasis we need to give. You alone know what is timely and what isn't. But we would ask that you would give us a greater leading of the Holy Spirit. That we would always know in every instance what you are doing. That both through prayer and deed, we might be in cooperation with you. Through Jesus, amen.